I used her music as my guidepost. So her music is deeply emotional. Her music can be epic. Her music can also be very intimate. It can feel sometimes like she's singing to you alone in a room. And I wanted that, that, that combination of feeling. I, I wanted the movie to be unabashedly emotional because that is how her music is. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Liesl Tommy's new biographical drama, Respect. The film follows the remarkable life of the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, from her early days singing in her father's church choir to her journey to find her voice in the midst of the turbulent social and political landscape of 1960s America to becoming a legendary international musical superstar. In addition to Respect, Ms. Tommy's other directorial credits include episodes of Dolly Parton's Heartstrings, Mrs. Fletcher, Jessica Jones, The Walking Dead, Insecure, Dietland, and Queen Sugar. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Tommy spoke with fellow director Rada Blank about filming Respect. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Liesl, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm saying that as your sister of cinema, your former flatmate, um, former golden girl, um, I'm so, so thrilled for you and what's to come. Um, this, what a way to begin a career as a film director. And so I guess my first question to you is like, what does it feel like being on this side of things now that the film is done and out into the world? How do you... Where are you inside? Um, I feel more tired than I've ever felt in my life. <laughs> I didn't know that doing the press would be more tiring than actually shooting the film. No one told me that. Where were all of you when I started? Where was the warning? Um, that part was, it's, and also just like the shock of suddenly being amongst people after a year and a half of lockdown. So it, that part is just, but um, now that the film is out, out, um, the relief I feel, I don't know. I was talking to the writer, Tracy Scott Wilson, today because she had 20 of her f friends and family saw the film in, this, in a cinema last night. And it's incredibly emotional. And we were just saying that we feel happy, um, like truly happy and so proud and, you know, we always get nervous when we feel happy and then try to qualify it and then undercut it because, you know, you, you feel like it's going to get taken away from you. Um, but I feel very happy. I feel very proud. Um, I can't believe it happened because there were so many ups and downs in this in this journey, especially through COVID. But I, I actually feel enormous joy. That's how I feel. So well-deserved. So, de so well-deserved. And I, again, like... This isn't just a fellow filmmaker. This is a fr very close friend. And I heard firsthand like, <laughs> as you were making it, like the challenges. Um, I mean, uh, gosh, I have so many questions here. What does it mean to make a movie like this about this epic, iconic black woman, black American, American figure? What, what is it to make a film like this now in this day and age? Well, you know, I, I love um, music and I love films 
about music or with music or near music. Um, and I love Aretha Franklin. She's been my favorite since I was a little, little girl. Uh, my parents played her music all the time. It's one of those things that you don't actually think you'll ever get to do in this life. You know, it's, it's not, it still feels completely surreal. And also, you know, as a black woman, you, there's just some things that you don't think that they will let you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the area of the, the, the big studio biopic f- for a long time has been, you know, has, has been in the hands of um, written, writing and directing of, of, of white men. And so when they reached out to me, um, someone had given Scott Bernstein, the producer and, and um, the studio, my name. Um, and they wanted to just have a general chat. Um, and I knew that I was pretty much a long shot. And so I just prepared like it was my only job. Um, and I, I didn't even really let, let them have small talk. <laughs> it was just like, this is what I think the movie should be. I think it needs to start in this time period and end in this time period. These are the songs. This is the style. This is some of the casting. These are the characters. I mean, I was, I was like a, a, a crazy person um, because I just felt like this was my moment and I had to communicate my vision or it was never going to, you know, I was gonna, it was going to disappear. You know, and I, I saw that early lookbook And it was so evocative. It really was so rich in tone. Like when it came, once you got that call and you finally unclenched your butt cheeks, because I'm sure, you know, making a, can I just roughly say what the budget is? No. I can't? Okay, gazillion dollars. Making a gazillion dollar film for your first fucking film. Like I'm a first time filmmaker too, right? But my shit was chump change compared to what she... And then you add the queen of soul, my God. Um, so when you, when you knew, okay, you unclenched them, you had two cheeks again, um, the, the crack came back. Um, once you sat down and you said, okay, I'm going to attack this, what was the first thing? Was it about the script? Was it about the music? Was it about an aesthetic? What was the very first point of attack in terms of your storytelling as a director? Well, um, you know, I made that lookbook, um, and it was like, you know, 65 pages long. And, you know, I, I had a very clear idea about the three decades, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s that this film should, should cover. Um, you know, when, after that pitch, they came back to me and they said that they, they were going to hire a writer first, but they liked the, my pitch so much they were going to bring me on and then basically build the film around that pitch. Um, is that really quickly, is that why you're also an executive producer on the film? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that lookbook was, you know, my way of really fleshing out because I didn't have a writer yet. Um, all the ideas and the themes um, inside of it, the style, the look, um, the feeling. And when it was time to bring on the writer, I brought on Tracy Scott Wilson, who is a dear friend of mine, someone I've worked with in theater. I've been a theater director for about 15 years before I moved into film and television. She and I had a show at The Public when we were very young called The Good the Negro. The Good Negro is yeah. excellent. So I knew that she would understand this time period. She also grew up in the Baptist church, um, and there, I, it had to be authentic. Aretha Franklin was nothing but authentic, and so the script had to reflect really lived-in sensibility. Um, 
And so she, you know, we, we started working on it together and we didn't have a lot of time because there was just this constant clock ticking because of music rights. Um, and so it was a very accelerated process. We basically spent 24 hours a day together for a few months and, and got this script together. And, you know, there were just... The thing that I wanted for it to do was reflect her music. I used her music as my guidepost. So her music is deeply emotional. Her music can be epic. Her music can also be very intimate. It can feel sometimes like she's singing to you alone in a room. And I wanted that, that, that combination of feeling. I, I wanted the movie to be unabashedly emotional because that is how her music is. And I wanted to use the, all the craft of cinema, because I can't do that in the theater, to create intimacy. You know, so silences and close-ups and, um, you know, just her alone with the camera um, was was just so such a joy because you know I, I I felt like that was a way to make us feel the way I felt when I listened to her music, and I was also you know there were certain things that I really was interested in as a filmmaker, and Tracy was you know so good at at translating these these ideas into the script, which was how how do you tell a story about grief on you know, when, when the, the grief, you know, the loss happened as a, as, as a child, how do you create a sense of being haunted all the way through, right? Um, how, I hate flashbacks, but I, I really felt like if you're going to tell a story where trauma plays a part into it, you have to figure out how to um, film flashbacks, how to use flashbacks. So I, I wanted to do it in a different way, right? Yeah, well, it, uh, it, but it almost felt like a composer creating an aria or a big piece of music where maybe the note could, is lingering for a long time here and you stopped it at a particular point and decided to return to it. That's how I felt like when those flashbacks appeared, they were like morsels, like they were just like a a shot in the arm in terms of, it didn't pull me out of the forward moving of the thing. And right. just, I just, kudos to you for even making a film of this epic, you know, size and budget and stars. And it, it did feel very intimate and very personal. Like a lot of times you see movies with, from the major studios and it, it feels kind of clunky and overloaded and, and just like, damn, how many stars are they going to put in this shit? You know what I mean? But it still felt very intimate and it felt like your voice was still in there. Speaking of Thank your you. voice, you, you come from theater as an actor, which some people may not know. You, you were an actor for many years and you were a director. Were there places that you pulled from that experience? And then were there places where you also just kind of pushed back and said, this is not uh, of a theater aesthetic? Like, Yeah, I mean, definitely. So, you know, I've done musicals, I've done Shakespeare, I've done kind of big epic things, I've done new plays. Um, and my understanding about how a song can function in storytelling definitely played into how I wanted to use music in this film. I, wanted, I knew that I was going to want to let the music play. Um, sometimes when I watch biopics, I think, wait, that was it? Like, what? That's my favorite song. Like, why isn't it playing more? You know, so I wanted to figure out how structurally we could justify letting the music play. And, 
And so the idea was to place the songs in the script in a way that actually carried storytelling forward, illuminated emotional um, truth, character revelation, you know, so that the, 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 the music would function as a scene, you know. And so that was why, why certain songs were placed in certain places and how, you know, we got away with um, letting it play. So that was definitely like a theater thing. And then also the way I work with actors, for sure. I, you know, I have a very specific aesthetic when it comes to acting. There's a certain kind of rawness, kind of um, realness, I guess, that um, I, I like in, in theater. I... Um, like people to forget they're watching a play and I, I want the same thing in a film um, where it just feels like you're, you're in the room with them a little bit. You're just watching life happen. And, and that's, a, you know, that takes a certain kind of trust that the actor has to have. Um, and I definitely push actors hard um, to get to that, that raw emotional place. Um, and that comes from a, having been an actor and then, you know, being a, a theater director. I wanted to ask you about that, about the process of working with these actors and creating this world. You have people as seasoned as Forrest Whitaker, who was amazing. Um, and then Marlon Wayans, who we have not seen in this light. Maybe Requiem for a Dream was the last time we saw him do something dramatic. He was amazing. And then you have someone with all of this raw talent like Jennifer Hudson, who is not necessarily a trained actor, how did you work with those specific actors in building this world? Well, I, I did have rehearsal in New York, you know, well before we started shooting. We, um, everybody came to New York for, uh, you know, what I call table work, where we just really did, went page by page, analyzed the script, analyzed the, you know, the story. Um, and... You know, that's, that's for me, that's what I, I do in theater where you just make sure everybody is telling the same story. Everybody understands their role in the larger story um, so that it's, you know, it's, co- it's coherent and cohesive. And they were into it. You know, like Mary J. Blige had that, you know, that one scene she flew in for a day and we like, you know, really dove in. Um, but in addition to, you know, doing the text analysis, there's the conversation around what this, what this means, what it's like, what, what is similar in their lives, all of that stuff that is what gets you, gets everybody inside of it. Yes. Um, and then, the, you know, then we all have a common language, you know, so when I talk about the events of the scene, you know, when we're on set, we know exactly what that is because we, you know, we've worked on it um, in a rehearsal room together. And, you know, and someone like Forrest, he, he loves it because, you know, he, he is genius. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how, I hope that every director gets a chance to work with somebody, an actor like that, because he's so generous. Every, after every scene, he would come like lumbering up to me um, and go, did you get what you wanted? You know, and the first time he did it, myself, the, you know, the DP, the crew, we all kind of were like, oh, what's Forrest is mad. He's coming up to me. And he was really just checking in, and he always checked in. You know, he, he believed in the vision, and he, he wanted, you know, he wanted me to be happy. Um, and with Jennifer and Marlon, I have a, you know, a, t- a dialect coach, movement person, vocal coach, and, I, I, and an acting person that I trusted who had the same language as I did. And I, I had them start working um, with my, this team about six months before we got onto set because I wanted a consistency of 
of style. Also, I wanted there to be authentic period dialect um, movement and, movement. and just, you know, all of that had to be consistent and that requires technique. And, you know, I feel like it, it's my job to set people up for success. It's my job to make sure that people, that you create an environment where everybody's on an, you know, an equal playing field. Um, and so, yeah, there was definitely times in the early days where the studio was like, why are we paying for all this so soon? <laughs> what you know, but I was just like, I promise you it's going to pay off. And it really did because people got to set, they were prepared, they were excited, they were happy. You know, I think the most dangerous thing on a set is actors who are afraid. You know, that's when people don't want to come out of their trailers, when they feel like they don't know what they're doing. That's when all kinds of shenanigans happen. And um, that didn't happen because everybody was ready. I, I do hope I get to work with someone like Forrest one day because uh, the lead of my movie was such a problem. I just <laughs> cannot stand her. We don't talk at this at this juncture. We probably won't work together again. Um, but yeah, I, I love that you're talking about technique and structure because I think it's very easy for people to see people who look like us and think we're just talented <laughs> or we're just working with talented people and that there isn't like a real strategy and blueprint uh, created. And then, like you said, months uh, ahead of time, um, that movement, those authentic movements that she was doing, mm -hmm. I, you often see people, I guess when they're arriving at period, they maybe think the, the most important thing is like hair and wigs, mm -hmm. but people move differently, right. you know, because, uh, I've heard Jennifer talk about this also about like women were just conditioned in a certain way and and acted a certain way in public at that time. And that's all through your film. And so kudos for you for, for doing that. Um, what, what was it like now you've known Tracy and Clint Ramos, who was the amazing costume designer on your, you've known them for years. What was it like working with friends on your first Film. I would also add Ina Mayhew, the incredible production designer. I've known oh, her yes. for years. I worked with her on uh, Queen Sugar and then on the Dolly Parton project for Netflix. Um, I, you know, I kind of felt because it was my first film, I had to have a posse because I was like, I need people who will take a who will take a bullet for me. Mm. You know, it's especially as a, on a studio film. You know, there's just so much politics. There's just, you know, there's the stakes are so high. Um, you know, tides are shifting constantly for all kinds of reasons. Um, I knew that I needed to have people that I have history with that I could, tr that I really trusted um, and who also wanted me to succeed. You know, um, wanting something for you as yes. opposed to from you. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so, you know, and I had to fight for everybody. Everybody was yes. a fight. Every single hire was a fight because I wanted to bring on people who hadn't done film before or, you know, or had only done, you know, were very accomplished, but in television. Um, but because I wanted, you know, diversity um, in the hires, I just had to keep on reminding everybody that um, it's not about being experienced. It's about access. You know, because that if I was going to just go with people who, you know, had done big studio films, it would be a very small pool and everybody would look the same. Um, but so Clint, who did the costumes, had never done a movie like this before. 
Um, you know, Ina, who did was a production di- designer, had been doing only television. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of people that the studio just didn't, they weren't, they couldn't track it. And so I had to really kind of talk to them about how it's our job to open up um, the conversation. And it's not, it, it's no, there's no point about getting on panels and wringing your hands. You just have to do it. Um, and of course, you know, they're so happy now and so proud and amazed um, at, you know, at what they're seeing. But it, it, it's, for them, it was a risk. For me, it wasn't. Right. And, you know, years from now, they'll be lauded for, you know, being allies and appearing anti-racist. But, you know, sometimes you have to push them to that place. Um, I want to go back to you editing down this epic story. I saw one of the first cuts and I think it was 10 hours long. Just joking. joking. (laughs) No, it was it was three hours and 15 minutes. And. You know, for people who don't... Down from five hours. Yes, exactly. It just started five hours, which, I mean, it's Aretha freaking Franklin. And, um, you know, like, gosh, I'm also very proud of you that you didn't take the typical cradle to grave, that you brought her through a certain, a particular journey in her life. But how did you... How the hell did you edit it down to 225? And, and, And the choice of... There's something that also felt deliberate about your editing and your shooting. Um, I did not see many acts of sexual or physical violence, and it feels deliberate to me. Can you talk about those two things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always knew that I was not going to be use graphic violence in this. I spent a lot of time figuring out how to shoot those scenes um, so that we could, uh, you know, leave it to your imagination. I feel like we've been traumatized with so much violence, images of violence, videos of violence over the last, you know, I don't know how many years now in this country that I did not want to re-traumatize the audience. I wanted to tell the story. Um, I also, you know, I sometimes think when there's the thing that happens where you actually degrade your, your character as you're trying, as you're telling their, their trauma. And I just, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to protect the character. I also wanted to protect the audience, frankly. And it's not about the punch. It's about the consequence of the punch. You know, it's about the, it's not about the, the assault. It's about the, the, the emotional fallout from the assault that I was interested in, in exploring. I edited the movie during lockdown here in New York. We had seven days, seven glorious days in the edit bay, and then we got shut down. And everybody retreated to their apartments, and my editor and I were in separate apartments for the entire edit process, using Evercast, which was constantly falling apart. We were having sync problems. We were having Wi-Fi problems. It was really, really, really hard. And of course, you know, 24-hour sirens. I live in Harlem. And it, I mean, it was just, I really did feel like the world was falling apart around me as I was editing this film. Um, it was, I, it was pretty rough. It was not, it's not, you know, and it's a music film, so I never got to be in a room, you know, where we, like, tried it out with the team and, like, you could feel the vibe. Is the song working? Are people grooving to it? Are they, is, you know, you can tell on their bodies if, if they're feeling it, and I didn't get, it, that didn't happen. Um, and anytime we had, like, more than three people on the Evercast, it would, it would like, fall apart. It was just <laughs> hell. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, that part was so hard, but 
at the end of the day, also so lucky to actually have had a thing to do during that time. Um, though bandwidth was a challenge. Um, it was so distracting, that, you know, just like checking in on the news every day, all that stuff. Um, but, you know, in the end, it was um, being able to put those music sequences together um, got me through it, you know. I feel like the music is, you know, very clearly the very other character. Yes. And that it um, filled in the those holes so that, you know, we did not have to see the violence because we heard it in her voice. Mm-hmm. We heard it in the lyrics. We felt it. Mm-hmm. Um, we felt the tension. And the other thing I really appreciate about this film is um, I think people t- take for granted, you know, you, you, you go to or you hear Aretha Franklin saying and you you literally hear the voice of God. And maybe we don't really get to see the genius and the brilliance of the the woman who helped to pull these disparate disparate pieces together to make a sound. And I love those scenes in Muscle Shoals where they're just like putting it together. Yes, they're skilled, but she's the spine through it all, you know, from her gospel, from her personal thing, being a woman, being married. um, That was, those were some of the most thrilling. It almost felt like a sports film for me (laughs) in those moments. But um, I have a favorite, favorite, favorite moment in the film. And I think it speaks to, in that moment, I feel like all the different parts of your voices, what I know of you, show up from theater, your love of music, your respect for Aretha. And it's that moment when she's singing Think and all of the music goes out. And it's just her voice. You know, you took this very big, epic moment, a big, epic film, and it just came down to that one moment. And I I saw it before, but the screening at the Martha's Vineyard was one where I, I saw it and lost my shit. Mm-hmm. Because one, you're in a room with people, we're all kind of experiencing it together. And it was just so moving. And it was like, you did it, girl. You used this musical moment. Um, and then silences to create this huge pivot for your character. What is your favorite moment? Well, first of all, thank you very much for that because that was that was something that I, from the very beginning, I, I knew that I wanted that. And it was beautiful. It was, I think, you know, I, I come from South Africa. I grew up during apartheid. And so anytime there are certain words, in certain words in language that really resonate for me and the word freedom obviously is one of those words and so I think anybody who says the word freedom in a sentence or in a song mm. it's like the word love like you better do something with it right you know so that was that was something that I I, um, I knew I wanted to do early on and for me my favorite scene is the entire ain't no way sequence Mm. Mm. Um, it wasn't supposed to be in the movie initially but then I found out that Jennifer really loved that song it's my favorite song you know and so I was like we got to figure out how to put it in here Um, and there's just a lot of storytelling that I was able to make happen in that song there was it's just it's one of those things that I just feel I feel very very satisfied when I when I see it because I think it's you know the thing about film that's so glorious is that even a character like Ted White in that song who doesn't really have any lines, camera can find so many details. You know, camera's a spy in that yeah. room. And then also was when I introduced, like, you know, the black and white, um, oh. the, 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 the film, you know, 16 millimeter. I love it. And I don't know if you were trying to give us, like, a little breath of comedy, but <laughs> it was... 
it was a joy to watch. It was a nice little. Yeah. That, you know, that, that tension at the same time, you know, you see his, he's, it's all falling apart. You know, as she's rising, he's, he's losing his grip. And then, and also just like introducing the, the, the black and white, because now there's the public face and the private face and the public face never go. I mean, like the, you know, she will always be exposed. And so using the, you know, the film um, was a way to kind of tell that story. So there was just a lot of layers that was really, really fun to, to introduce and carry through the rest of the film. Um, you know, that's what just as a film nerd, it was just like so much fun, like playing in a freaking sandbox with all, all the toys. You know, it's funny as I watched the film, speaking of film nerd, um, we just recently did a series at the Paris, uh, where I Amazing. got to show my film on 35 millimeter film. And then I got to curate some, you know, I wish I could do 20 of them, but like nine films, quintessential films that influenced me. Robert Townsend, someone we both really love and, 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 and have been loved on and learned from. I'm watching Hollywood Shuffle and I'm seeing these young actors kind of workshop things that are going to show up, you know, from the Jerry Crow guy, mm-hmm. Soul Glow, mm-hmm. um, Damon Wayne's doing uh, uh, the homeless dude to other things. And when I watch your film, I'm, I'm just so full of like seeing these familiar faces mm-hmm. that maybe the film audience doesn't, isn't familiar with, but say mm-hmm. who plays her sister, Leroy, um, there's these a lot of theater actors actresses that I've yeah. worked with yeah, over the yeah. years. Okay. Um, you know, like I, I did a lot of regional theater in addition to Broadway and so on. And there are these incredible actors that, you know, no one in the film world knows about They're theater actors who are gifted and, you know, worked for me for five cents for no money in theater. So I felt like I should bring them along. And it was, it was wonderful to be able to, you know, to cast some big mama, is an actress I've worked with a lot in theater, Leroy McLean, who played um, Cecil, her brother and manager, someone I've worked with a lot. Um, Albert Ken Cunningham, you know, the sisters. All, it's just, it's Titus Burgess. We, yeah. we met like way back when we were, I was like, I directed him in like a reading. It's so lovely to see him take on a role like this. Yeah. And we might know him from the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where mm-hmm. he's kind of like a comedic, you know, uh, delight on the show. But for him to sit in the Cleveland role. Um, But I do feel like at some point somebody's going to look back and be like, you know, same thing with Hollywood Shuffle and Paul Mooney. They're going to be like, look at all of this talent that was in this film. I mean, you, I just have to say like for this to be your first film, Liesl, you knocked this shit out the park. It is so good and so powerful. And, you know, yeah, I didn't feel like someone was trying to imitate Aretha. I feel like it was, all of you all's interpretation of this incredible life story, and it's just moving and deep. We are on two spectrum, different spectrums in terms of like first films, mm-hmm. right? Um, how do you feel in this moment? This has set the tone for you as a director, and what you want to do in your career as a storyteller going forward. Um, thank you for that question. It's it's um, well. It was such a joy to work on this film in terms of, you know, every moment on set was heaven. It was, it was just dreamy. You know, I I was so paranoid and therefore so, so, so prepared that I actually was able to, we were able to have a lot of fun on set executing, right? Um, So what I know is that the next thing I do, 
I have to love it as much as this. Um, I have to love the people that I work with as much as I loved my collaborators on this. I don't think um, I, I can do it any other way. Um, you know, I, I, Rod and I are, were apart housemates. We lived in rent-stabilized studios in Harlem across the hall from each other, shared a bathroom for a long, long time. Long, long time um, because I wanted to keep my overhead low so that I could just make choices that were about art and not about money. And so for me, this film felt like an extension of that. It was, a, it was me making a piece of art and having a conversation with the community the way I did in theater. And I, I, I just know that it, to me, you know, it's like, I don't think it's about like, oh, I made a movie for this much money, so my next m movie has to be this much money. It will always just be about like, what is something I, what is, can I pour my heart and soul into it? You did, girl. You did with this one. And thank we're you all so, so much. proud thank and inspired you so by much. you. I want to say thank you to the DGA. This thank is a you, real DGA. full circle moment because last year when my film was coming out, Liesl hosted, and now I get to have the honor of hosting her for her first and, and, and amazing first film. So thank, thank you, you, DGA, for having thank us. Thank you, DGA. We love thank you. Thank you to the members. Thanks for our health insurance. Yes. <laughs> proud card-carrying member. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.